Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and today I have two very special guests. I'm just so excited for this interview. I always say that. I'm always excited for the interviews, but this one, I just got to tell you, we're in for a real treat. I have two guests. I have Todd Compton and I have Joe Geisner. Joe Geisner has just edited a wonderful book that has come out by Signature Books called Writing Mormon History, Historians and Their Books. And Joe got several great authors to basically tell the story of why they wrote their books, how they wrote their books, and even kind of the aftermath. So it's the story behind the story. I mean, if it, 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 I'm telling you, it is a page turner. If you ever want to know, especially with Mormon history and religious history, we all can understand that it's it's controversial, it's interesting, it's fun. I mean, all these authors from all different backgrounds, believers that wrote history, non-believers that wrote history and Mormon history, the fact that you're getting these backstories is so good. And Todd Compton is one of the contributors. He wrote this amazing book that is a landmark in the field of Mormon studies and Mormon history. It's called In Sacred Loneliness, The Plural Wives of Joseph Smith. It was published by Signature Books in 1997. Is that right, Todd? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's a great book. Every single Mormon history conference I go to, I was just telling Todd, I always hear about his book. It's always mentioned in one session. And Joe's book is getting some really great traction. So anyways, just wanted to introduce Todd Compton and Joe Geisner. Welcome to the New Books Network, guys. Really appreciate you guys being on the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So excited. Yeah, so excited to talk with you. Thank you. So first question I have is just... Joe if, and Todd, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves, your backgrounds, you know, influences? I know, Joe, you have an amazing book collection. You're, uh, you're an avid book collector. I'm sure Todd is the same way. So, if, Joe, if we don't mind starting with you first, um, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and, you know, how you got interested in this project. Yeah. Um, I joined my family, actually, my mom was looking for religion and met a friend who introduced our family to the missionaries. And we then uh, were taught and baptized. I went to BYU, uh, went on a mission, came home, continued back to BYU, got married in the temple. You know, so I did live that whole Mormon life. But while I was on my mission and a lot of missionaries seem to do this, is we were able to buy books while on a mission at a, a steep discount and in sometimes the wholesale price. I think I bought my first History of the Church set uh, on uh, my mission, and I got them for the cost that Deseret Book was selling them for. Matter of fact, my mom, as I kept sending these very heavy boxes home to be put in my bedroom, 
uh, she kept saying, what are you sending home bricks or rocks or something? And, you know, I just, I went without eating so that I could uh, buy more books. And uh, then I, while I was on a family trip, we stopped, and this is all in the introduction. We stopped in Salt Lake City, and by chance, I got to meet Leonard Arrington. And he was very well, that's kind. A funny, that was a funny story, too, because you just walked in, you know, unannounced, no appointment, and said, would it be possible to meet Leonard Arrington? <laughs> Yeah, and then it, and it was actually Ron, a very young Ron Walker. I was only seventeen, and Ron Walker, uh, as I said, he looked like the perfect historian nerd. He had the <laughs> the you know the the black framed glasses, and you know his hair was cut almost like a missionary. And I mean, it was just, it was quite funny now to look back on it. At the time I had long hair and a beard and I felt extremely out of place. Um, <laughs> and, and Leonard, you know, he just was gracious. He was so kind to me as a 17 year old kid. And then I, at BYU, I got to know Mike Quinn and again, same thing, you know, just gracious and kind. And then I start buying books and, and journals and start reading the works that these people have, have written as I'm getting to know them. I start attending Sunstone and even meet more of these people. Uh, I actually, 1988 in Concord, California, met Todd and he was, he presented a paper and uh for a friend and so i got to meet todd in 1988 and then you know and as you said in 97 right was when in sacred loneliness came out you know so um i get to meet these people and talk with them and some of them you know have told me their stories some of them haven't but they're all such good kind people and and like you daniel i mean i meet you at sunstone and we talk, we bring in somebody else from Signature Books. Next thing you know, your book is uh, Forgotten Prophet is, is published. So, you know, these, these were stories that needed to be captured, I felt. And uh, I was lucky, I think, that I got 15 people who were incredible at both historians and at telling their story to to do chapters for the book well thanks joe for saying that yeah it's it's a terrific book todd's essay is fantastic really interesting and yeah and, and joe i mean i can just tell you it was really fun meeting you at that sunstone and it just kind of goes to show you and, and what you see in your book is that mormon history is very much um like i, I love uh richard bushman's uh excerpt on the back of your book he, he says, these essays help us understand that writing history is a deeply human enterprise. And that's really true. But with, even within Mormon history, the connections that you make within, uh, with especially at these conferences and with people, you have people who got their PhDs in Mormon history. You have people who just love history. And they all talk. They all get together. They all respect each other. It's really a unique uh, genre to be in. Absolutely. And, you know, 
I don't know, Todd, how you feel about this, but Leonard set the tone for that. When I remember the first time I ever told Mike Quinn about that experience I had at the church office building and meeting Leonard, he said, that's the way we were. We just, Leonard created an atmosphere that everyone was welcome and everybody was treated kindly. And, and then, you know, I, uh, somebody that I wish could have written a chapter was Bob Flanders on his monumental book, Kingdom on the Mississippi. Um, but unfortunately, Bob has dementia and, um, he's one of my heroes. So, and I got to meet him. I don't know. It was eight, nine years ago. And, um, you know, just an amazing person. And Bob grew up in the RLDS faith, uh, and then became, I think he's Presbyterian and, uh, in his, um, probably thirties or so forties, he, uh, he and his wife became Presbyterian. And, and just the the kindness shown to me again by Bob and 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 Richard Howard of the RLDS tradition, who has also written an, a monumental book that I'd love to get his story, but um, again because of health issues. And that's the thing I thought of as I went around asking people is I thought I need to do this. I need to do this now because wouldn't it have been something? to have had Val Avery write a chapter or Bob Flanders write a chapter, those people. And, and I've lost that opportunity. So I now need to jump at that and, and get people to put it down. So that was part of why doing the book. Oh, that's awesome. That's fascinating stuff. Thanks, Joe. That's brilliant. So Todd, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, tell us about who you are, your background, Tell us a little bit about In Sacred Loneliness, because we're definitely going to dive into your chapter and why you wrote your book. Mm -hmm, sure. Um, I was raised in a conservative, fairly conservative Mormon family, but it was kind of like there was an element of uh, academia there, too. You know, my dad taught, taught uh, at BYU, taught Spanish. And so I remember there were history books on our Mormon history books on our shelves as I was growing up. And um, I, um, I got interested in um, when I was at BYU, I got interested in um, ancient history and ancient scripture. And I went to all of the classes of, of Hugh Nibley. And um, so I ended up majoring in classics, Greek and ancient Greek and Latin, and um, uh, ended up at UCLA getting my PhD there. And um, then through an odd series of events that are told at length in my, my essay, um, I ended up writing a, a, a book of Mormon history. And... Uh, just very briefly, what happened was um, I had a friend. Well, I taught, I graduated with my PhD and I taught for a year at um, USC across town. And then I kind of had nowhere to go. You know, it was like a one year appointment. And so I really didn't know what I was going to do. And um, I had a friend who had started a Mormon history 
PhD at University of Utah, and she said, Todd, at the Huntington Library, they're giving these um, fellowships to, you know, where they pay you to come in and just research a Mormon history subject. And she said, they have the diaries of Eliza R. Snow. Why don't you apply and um, see if you can get a, a fellowship? And I thought that was a crazy idea because I have no background in Mormon history, really. You know, I've always been interested in it, but I, I did no research in it. You know, I was always in ancient stuff. I, I loved ancient myth, you know, and ancient ritual, that kind of thing. But it looked like it would be easy to apply for this fellowship. So I went ahead and did it. And strangely enough, I got the fellowship. And so I had to work on the diaries of Eliza Snow, <laughs> which is, was a wonderful thing to do. And as I was working on her diaries, I was trying to recognize who the women were she was um, referring to, because sometimes the, the references are enigmatic, uh, like Mrs. Buell, who's Mrs. Buell? You know, that's a married name. Then you try to figure out what the birth name is, and and uh, it's, it's really tricky to identify a lot of these women. And um, so I realized I would have to get a good list of Joseph Smith's wives because Eliza R. Snow was a wife of Joseph Smith. And that I could not find a good up-to-date scholarly list of Joseph Smith's wives. And so that got me interested in trying to create a list like that. And that ended up, you know, five or so years later as a book in which I had uh, the life story of each of Joseph Smith's 33 wives. I, I felt that you could document 33 women who had married Joseph Smith during his lifetime. And so it was a wonderful kind of detective game trying to figure out the lives of these women. And um, at the same time, I started reading their diaries and it became very emotionally um, affecting to, to learn about their stories. And um, their stories were often, you know, there's a lot of tragedy. It was very, a very difficult life being a pioneer back then in Utah. And so I got very emotionally involved with, with these women. At the same time, I was doing this wonderful you know, detective work trying to find out what was going on. And so I ended up, you know, I never would have, I never would have chosen to do a, a subject like this. It was just by this weird series of happen chances. And five years later, I ended up publishing the book. Um, so I was, um, my, as I said, my parents were fairly conservative Mormons, and I grew up a fairly conservative Mormon, but I became more and more liberal as, as time went on. You know, at the same time, I was, you know, attending church, and um, uh, I was attending Sunstones, and I started attending Mormon History Associations, which were wonderful experiences. And um, so I think some of the first publications and uh, some of the first talks I gave about in sacred loneliness were in um, Sunstone. So Joe might have heard some of those. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so 
as I was writing the book, you know, I, I was I had a really healthy sense of church leaders being human, making mistakes. And, you know, I, I felt that really came through in my book. It was like um, some people, you know, a lot of Mormons viewed Joseph Smith as the absolute perfect prophet of the church, you know, and kind of see him as having no mistakes at all. And I, I really feel like that is not a realistic way of looking at him. And so um, my view of Joseph Smith changed you know, as, as a result of writing the book, you know. Um, and let's see, what else can I say about my background? Um, I was, I wanted to ask Daniel's story about his family and how they dealt with um, his doing his research and publishing his book. But I'll tell you a little bit about my family. You know, my um, parents were fairly conservative and they retired to St. George. And um, my dad was teaching a Sunday school class. He was team teaching with um, a retired general authority, one of the 70s. I, I even forget his name. But what happened was when my book came out, AP did a story about my book. And so this story with a picture of me appeared through, you know, throughout the country. <laughs> and on their little St. George newspaper, they opened it up and there I was. And there was this story <laughs> about Joseph Smith's plural wives. And my mom said, oh, Merlin just said, Oh, oh, heaven. <laughs> You've got to see this. And, um, but what happened was this retired general authority did not make the connection that I was the son of uh, my dad. And so he, he took, he took the occasion that day to, to talk about me and my book and, saying nothing good about it, attacking it. <laughs> and there, there was some part of it was about me starting my research at the Huntington. You know, and of course, after that, I went on and, and did a lot of work in LDS Church archives in Salt Lake and many other archives and libraries. But he kind of took that as the place to start. Like, here is this guy says he's writing about Justice Pro Wives and He's only been to the Huntington Library. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it was kind of funny. My dad took the brunt of that right after the book was published. But I had, you know, he kind of, that general authority kind of looks unsympathetic in that story. But later on, he, he was a retired doctor and my dad had um, an appendix problem. And he diagnosed him immediately, says, you need that appendix out. And so I was really grateful to this retired general authority that he had helped my dad at that point. So that just shows the complexity of life, you know. You, of you, life, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's my, little, that's my little story. Uh, in my, actually, in, my, um, in the essay, I talk about my mother's response. Like some of the women Joseph Smith married were actually – married to other men, and they stayed married to other men. And I was telling people these stories. I mean, they're very difficult stories uh, as I was writing the book. And so I told my mom about, you know, Zina, Diantha Huntington, 
Jacobs Smith Young and how she was married to Henry Jacobs and married Joseph Smith and later was still married to Henry Jacobs and then married Brigham Young and so on. Anyway, I told her the story. It's a fascinating story. And conservative, you know, conservative Mormon that she was, she said, if Joseph Smith did that, he shouldn't have. <laughs> so that was a really interesting and for me memorable <laughs> response from a really um, conservative person. So that's oh, a little man. bit about so my that... background, a little bit about my family. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about my my siblings. Um, I have one sibling who's super active in the church, and the rest aren't. I have four siblings, you know, and um, I, I myself am, as I told you, I was liberal, and I continued to be more and more liberal, and um, I got married at, at one point after publishing In Sacred Loneliness, and my wife and I attended church, and uh, we ended up, um, you know, again, you need to, it's hard to tell these stories without telling them in detail, a lot more background, but we, we've ended up kind of, you would, be, you would define us as less active at this point. So... That's a little bit about my background. Oh, fascinating. See, this is, uh, Joe, this is what makes your book so good. I, I believe this is the first ever that anyone has ever done this, especially within Mormon history, is just talking with the authors, letting them talk behind. This is a deeply human enterprise. I, I love how Richard Bushman says this. It's it's not just about writing the history and getting the facts right. It's a, it, it's all-encompassing. It, and as Todd has even said at one point, it's it's very you have to sacrifice a lot for personally, emotionally, time wise, money wise. I mean, just there's just so much that you're embedded into yourself when you write a book, but especially within Mormon history, because whether you are a member of the LDS Church or you're not, it doesn't. Or if you're a believer or non-believer, it doesn't matter because once you start getting into this uh, into this field, it is a blessing and it's a minefield all at the same time and you just enter it. And if you don't know it, you'll, when you're going into it, you will find out very soon that that's what it is. I I don't want to take, I don't want to take any of Todd's thunder away, but Todd's book um, may have been criticized shortly after publication. What's, what's interesting now is it's actually the go-to book for sta- from statements f- by church officials when the sticky subject of Joseph Smith's many marriages gets discussed. So it's now be it, it's now looked at as a positive, where at one time it was looked at as a negative. Um, and Todd didn't do anything different in the first printing, second printing. I, how many printings has it gone through, Todd? Four, five? Uh, it, two with text changes. The two with text. Other than but, that, other than that not, I don't know. Right. And you've not changed the story, though. The story's still oh, no, there. No. The story's no, still no, the I, same. I yeah, fixed some you know. typos. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a, um, 
Oh, and speaking of that, by the way, Will Bagley's already pointed out the typos in our book, too. Just so, just so <laughs> yeah, yeah, I found a couple, too. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, um, it, it, it's the perspective of those around us. And we all change. It, it, that's why Todd's point about when we do history, there's no, and, you know, I remember Mike Quinn in his Sunstone said it's the same thing. There's no black hats. There's no white hats, or there are very few. You know, we do have some people in history who did wear black hats, but 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 for the average person, you know, there's a lot of gray hats. Um, maybe even different shades of gray, but there's still a lot of gray hats. And you know, Joseph Smith, you know, it is so complicated. And the way Todd stepped into that, and and the re- I I actually was able to chair one of Todd's sessions at Sunstone one time, and I said to the audience, I said, you know, this is a book that you would say a woman should have written, um, meaning in Sacred Loneliness, but it wasn't. It was a man who wrote it, and not only was it a man who wrote it, but a man who took the women's and saw through the women's eyes of what happened during that time. And, and this, the skill that Todd did that with is quite remarkable in my opinion. I I should mention that I, I quoted a lot from the women. So a lot of what's great in that book does come directly from those women, the wonderful things they wrote, you know, diaries, memoirs, and so on. And, and that that's a plus as well, because you you are having the women speak for themselves, um, which sometimes we've re- read history books that uh, don't allow the people to speak. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Todd, I can attest. I just want to say I can attest to Todd's landmark book because I even had to cite it in my PhD thesis. So, I mean, I had to look at it too. I mean, it's it, over 20 years later, it's still being talked about. I think that is the the greatest thing of all. If your book is still being talked about after two decades, then you have succeeded. And I know I know Todd's book is in that well, and I really believe Joe that your book is in that in that realm as well because you are finally getting these stories that no one has ever gotten on paper. Now people are going to be referencing, referencing these forever because it's, it, it, these stories won't go away. So people are going to have to always look at them. And it's, it, it's a testament to what people are getting into when they write Mormon history. Well, and, and, you know, we can turn the tables on you right now on this, Daniel, and say, you spoke for a man who was essentially forgotten. Your, the, your subtitle is forgotten prophet. Um, you know, you, you gave voice to somebody. And I think that's what historians are supposed to do is they're supposed to give voice to those who have been neglected, to those who have been forgotten. And, uh, Todd did that in sacred loneliness. You've done that in forgotten prophet. Oh, thanks for saying that. Yeah. I, and thanks for you know thanks for saying that Joe you're very kind to both of us but yeah i mean history is an imperfect craft right no book is perfect there's always going to be new sources that come out or better uh understandings of those sources but when historians dive into it you, your goal is to get most of it right and i think that every single person in your book has done that 
And they have different interpretations. Some people even disagree with each other. So, And I loved that you included Brian Hales. If anybody is unaware of Brian Hales, if you're listening to this and not really into Mormon history, Brian Hales wrote these really foundational books on Joseph Smith's polygamy that people who basically don't agree. Brian Hales kind of takes this very nuanced approach and Joe and Todd, correct me if I'm wrong, because you guys are more experts on polygamy than I am. But he basically argues that Joseph Smith didn't really have a lot of conjugal relations with women, that it was more spiritual, uh, more spiritual marriages, more than just no actual marriages where you would have, you know, conjugal relations with them. And uh, I find that fascinating because Brian goes he he has all these amazing sources that he dug up with the help of Don Bradley. And he, you included him in there, Joe, because even though Brian Hales is really shaking things up, which history is supposed to do, and there's this controversy, you included him to show that, you know what, no, this is important. Th- these are important topics to discuss. So it kind of goes show, to show you how balanced you were with your book as well. Oh, well, thanks. Well, I'll let Todd speak to the conjugal part, but since he's the expert on that with Joe Smith, no, I, <laughs> but <laughs> I, uh, but I, I just want to say about Brian's chapter because I was actually telling somebody today about Brian's chapter, and they were shocked by my re- response to them. Was that that Brian's chapter is fantastic? Mm-hmm. Um, he he did an amazingly good job at at get, telling his story. And, and, and that's not to say that I didn't expect him to do a great job, but I appreciate the effort. And 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 uh, it's funny because I I teased uh, Brian at, at uh, John Whitmer Historical Association meeting that we had in um, Rochester, New York, in September, and uh, he he has a photograph of him surrounded by all of his research material. And I said, Gary Pajera, who's the editor, senior editor at Signature Books, um, I said, Gary and I love the picture of you. And um, uh, Brian's response was, oh, you're getting soft on me. So, <laughs> you know, that was, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, and and the other, there will be a shot, you know, people who know about Mike Quinn and and know that he was excommunicated from the uh, Utah Church, the Mormon Church, in uh, headquartered in Salt Lake City. That um, and he's a controversial figure within so much of Mormonism um, during his own life. Um, but yet, his chapter is an explanation of how he felt that. Um, this was part of the church's plan and part of God's plan that he would write honest history about Mormonism. He was employed by the church. Um, his uh, superiors uh, gave him good references so that he was able to get into Yale for his doctorate and in uh, history and then was hired at BYU as a professor and was actually voted uh, Professor of the Year, um, I think it was the year or two before he then actually had to leave BYU under, um, he was, he, he had all of his um, 
stipends taken away to travel and lecture. And there was a lot of controversy over him because he had written both about new plural marriage, which is an interesting subject in and of itself. And then he wrote about Joseph Smith's involvement in magic. And, and so his chapter gives a very different side than what people, I think, were expecting. So that's one of the nice things about writing Mormon history. I think there are shocking parts of it for, for people as they read. Uh, Todd is a good example of having to sleep on a couch in his friend's home as he's trying to, to do research for uh, in sacred loneliness. You know, the, 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 the things that each – there's a few um, – themes throughout the book. One is the the giving up of certain things by every author to make their work happen. Um, the tenacity of trying to get their work done and get it published is another theme. Yet, as I, you know, it was funny, every author said, well, what's my parameters? What do you want me to do? What are you expecting? You you probably remember both Daniel, you and Todd probably remember asking me that. And my statement back to each of you was, I want you to tell your story. I want your voice to come through in the chapter. I don't want my voice and I don't want anybody else's voice. I want your voice to come through in each chapter. Thanks, Joe. And I appreciate that. You did that. a great yeah. job. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you can tell all the voices are there, and th- there was a lot of openness, which is really nice. I mean, it's interesting because it's a scholarly book, but it's also a personal book. It's a memoir book. It's 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 all encompassing. So again, it's you know, I'm not. It, it's just a great book to read. All the contributors did a wonderful job. I I read book. through I read through the whole book, and Daniel's was one of the essays that I really enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed all of them, but Daniel's was so fascinating to me. Um, and it was in his case, I, I knew most of the other people but in his case, I didn't know him at all. And I, I hadn't read his book. And so, so fascinating to me to see the whole different kind of culture that I, I had known nothing about the history of, of his church. What, what do you call it now? Um, it's not bigger oh, tonight. Yeah, it's just the Church of Jesus Christ. And then, you know, colloquially, it's referred to as the Bickertonites. But most of the people in my church, they're not opposed to it. Well, some people are, but they don't really prefer being called the Bickertonites. See me, it doesn't bother me. You know, it's it's also an issue within my church to be called Mormon. That is nobody, I don't know anybody in my church that would, that would, uh, be, be comfortable with being called a, being a part of Mormonism, but I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I really am because the one thing I learned by studying William Bickerton and I've told a lot of people was that I can't, I could not understand William Bickerton until I understood Joseph Smith and Sidney yep. Bickerton, his, his first yep. counselor. You have to understand them in order to understand Bickerton. And, and to me, that was the, the breaker point where it's like, what, and I know now we're, you know, we're kind of shifting away from the term Mormonism I know the uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints and the, the the prophet right now is trying to move that away. But you know what? Within the Mormon history, it's a very common term. I mean, it kind of it's. I think we're starting to realize and where the field's going, and that's where I want to ask you to. It's an all encompassing word that includes not just you know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. It includes the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, now known as the Community of Christ. It includes the Bickertonites. It includes everybody. 
Well, you, you the, know, I uh, think I think in some ways we're we're different, but in other ways we have a lot in common. You know, so it's nice to be able to look at those things we we hold in common. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah well, the Book of Mormon is probably the most common thing among all of the restoration churches um you know that was that was one of the things that impressed me when i went to the the church in monagahea and i've attended their services a few times and and enjoyed every single one of them the the strangite church the church of jesus christ of latter day saints big d no hyphen is also commonly known as Mormons. And I, I wanted, when we had long discussions, uh, Signature Books and I did, again, you, your your chapter talks about in sacred loneliness and your discussions about the title. Well, I had similar discussions and uh, we finally agreed that writing Mormon history made the most sense as a, as a uh, title because Mormon is an all-encompassing word for all these restoration movements. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, let Absolutely. me ask. Let me ask Daniel before we go further. Um, yeah, uh, we were talking beforehand about how our families reacted to our research and publications. So, Daniel, could you tell a little bit about um, how your family reacted to the the book and your research and so on? Uh, yeah, sure. You know, I'm really thankful. Uh, my parents are very supportive. My brother was very supportive. My wife was extremely supportive. Everybody was extremely supportive. My in-laws were extremely supportive. And they were all along for the ride because they read, I would have them read the chapters and they would give me, you know, uh, they would give me really good like feedback on, you know, like a lot of prose and grammar which was really helpful. So they were they were the backbone. And um, I'll speak for my parents. They were always supportive. But when I first started really trying to get the documents or getting these uh, things that hadn't been talked about, and I had to go to Kansas for the first time. I had gone to Kansas a few times while doing, while doing research for the book. But the first time I was going to go, I was going to talk to this uh, elder named Alexander Robinson. And um, he had there was some issues with him and the church he didn't leave the church, but he was having some issues with, he was in disagreements with some of the people. And, um, he was always a very, uh, very firm Bickerton believer because, you know, he always took Bickerton's side. And if, as you'll see in the, my chapter, if you read William Bickerton's story, you see there's a divide within even not really in the church today, but among some church, among some people, especially family members where you have like the Cadman family and the cat and the people who sympathize with that narrative versus the Bickerton side. And there really isn't any Bickerton family members, as far as I know, within the church anymore. So, I mean, imagine that. So his story was kind of tucked away as Joe talks about. So when I was ready to go to get these documents from Alex Robinson, I never met Alex. I had only talked to him over the phone. And my mom was actually kind of nervous for me to just fly out there, you know, to go talk to some guy I had never been to. I was still living at home at the time. I just graduated with my master's in history. I'm ready to go out to Kansas. I'm actually like in the middle of like packing my bags and stuff. And she's like going to ready to open up my door to tell me that she doesn't want me to go. And something inside of her, this is her story that she told me as she's ready to open up the door. She hears a voice inside of her say to her, don't you know I'm about my father's business? And it stopped her from opening up my door to tell me not to go. 
And it was not too long after that, that I had found out, I had read the whole, the whole uh, 19th chapter of Job, which talks about that, that William Pickerton had read at his funeral to kind of express how he was feeling, you know, how he felt like how his church had the church that he started had treated him. And it's, it's my kinsfolk have failed. My familiar friends have forgotten me. And there was that one part that really struck me where it said, Oh, that my words were now written, that they are printed in a book, that they are graven with an iron pen and the lead and rock forever. And I never knew that William Pickerton from his grave was basically saying, people are forgetting about me, please. I want my story told because I know it won't be. And that it was not too long after that. My mom told me that I found that out. So it was, you know, it's, I can only, I know it's a little more personal on my level, but that was something that was a big deal. And ever since then, my, my parents were all always on board because my, you know, my mom had that, what we would, would call like an experience or maybe even a revelation. It was really interesting. So after that, they were always very supportive and on board. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. So now that we talked all about this book and how basically all the reasons why, Joe, you had it that you wanted to have it published, for since both of you are scholars and expert in, in Mormon history, how do you see that how writing Mormon history has evolved over time? Because Joe's book definitely goes into that and you see that. But how do you two see the evolution of Mormon history evolving over time? Todd, you go first. Okay. Um, you know, um, I think the internet has really changed things um, in, in a couple ways. One is controversial subjects are well known because of the internet now. And when I started, you know, there was no internet and um, a lot of people didn't know. People didn't attend Sunstone or, or read dialogue. They didn't know any of these problem issues, but now, they're, they're out in the open. And another thing about the internet is there's so many documents available now. Um, primary sources, old texts, old newspapers that weren't available then. So that's a wonderful way things have changed. And, you know, if you go and read the, the life histories of people like Fawn Brody and Juanita Brooks, they didn't have any of this stuff. You know, so it's very different now. Um, archives have been professionalized. Again, Fawn Brody, who wrote No Man Knows My History, a biography of Joseph Smith. She did not have access to the archives. Um, so things have changed for the better. Um, and another thing now, and this is an obvious thing, but you can't, you can't underestimate it enough, is there have been so much an accumulation of publications you know, like primary sources and wonderful secondary writings. Like, you know, just when Signature Books published the Wilford Woodruff, complete Wilford Woodruff diaries, that was such an incredible education and um, and something you would always quote for, when you know, quote when they were, you know, applicable. And all kinds of things like that have been published now. So... So I think you would call that an evolution. What about you, Joe? What do you think? Yeah. Oh, I think you. <laughs> that's perfect. Uh, I think you you really nail it. Um, one of the things I've seen is really the new Mormon history. You could all go all the way back in to Fawn Brody or Juanita Brooks 
um, Dale Morgan, and they were sort of this group that moved Mormon history from completely a polemical uh, side of their, the way they always saw it was either where you were, you know, people on both sides, both sides of the issue, the people who were non-Mormons who had written about Mormonism or the people who were within Mormonism who, who wrote and the people within Mormonism, their feelings were that you only wrote pro and it was basically propaganda. Um, if you read uh, books like the essential um, history of the church by Joseph Fielding Smith um, or uh there's a couple of books by John Witso, same thing. They're, they're propaganda pieces. But the same is true for the opposite side of that, too. So um, where – and Fawn Brody's book was looked at as propaganda by, by people like John Witso and Joseph Fielding Smith. But yet, as time has shown – it, it was a scholarly work. And then particularly Juanita Brooks, um, because she was not only um, a, a faithful, believing Mormon who lived in Utah uh, and had grown up in um, Nevada, but she also had friends like Fawn Brody and Dale Morgan. And Dale Morgan, in many ways, was her mentor. And um, and he was uh, a great historian for the West. Um, he wrote for the government. And so um, that happened. But then Leonard Arrington came on the scene. And he, along with uh, Jim Allen and uh, Richard Lloyd Anderson and... Um, Davis Bitten and uh, there's more, but but they took Mormonism and they were all PhDs. So where Fawn Brody um, was not when she got those, I think she became a PhD because she taught at UCLA actually. Um, and uh, and uh, Juanita Brooks never was a PhD, she, I think, or she got an honorarium, but she, she did get her master's from Columbia. And, um, and I, Dale Morgan, I don't think was a PhD either. So, um, so you had this other group who now they're PhDs and they really created a, uh, almost a shopping list of the way they wanted history to be written which was they were believing active Mormons, but they also wanted the, the history to be scholarly and to um, allow for the environment. A good example would be the word of wisdom. Um, it, it, Leonard Arrington wrote an article that was published in an early issue of BYU Studies that actually ended up getting BYU Studies uh, closed for a little while, and then it started back up again. But because he had put in the environmental, the temperance movement, and 
the people who said either you're for us or against us felt that by allowing temperance movement, you uh, made it more naturalistic. Um, so that was the new Mormon history. I think we've now even invo- evolved into, and and Todd uh, may disagree with me on this, but I even would say that in sacred loneliness moves us into this next thing, which is um, a uh, revisionist historical uh, look that we're that we take and look at the past. Um, Will Bagley's a big uh, uh, historian in that. Uh, Bill McKinnon, um, they both have chapters in the book. um, And they're looking at what all the sources are saying and weighing them equally. They're not saying that one side has... uh, the upper hand and they're not looking at it from a faithful so much as trying to allow the sources to speak for themselves with Todd. I think where Todd fits into this very well is that he, like he said, he lets the women speak for themselves. And, and that's the way I'm seeing revisionist historians doing Um, so that, that, and, and I think the internet, has sort of made, you know, if somebody says Zina, uh, Diantha, Huntington, uh, Jacob Smith Young um, was married uh, three different times, you know, all they have to do is do a Google search and they can find primary records. You know, they can find her journal, her journal. Both her Nauvoo journal and her Utah journal, they're, they're not the complete journals, but they're, you know, enough to give you a good feel. They're, they're right there for you at your fingertips. We have Joseph Smith's own holographs um, of his journal, you know, the, the few pages that he wrote in journals and the few letters. And, and uh, there's a, 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 a blessing to one of his plural wives that Todd did a chapter on um, with um, Sarah Ann Whitney. And, you know, we now, we can see a record that was housed in the first presidency vault, which was like a bank vault in the church administration building that nobody was allowed, not even the first presidency even knew what was in there. Uh, there only was like maybe one person that even had a clue what was in there, and he still didn't even know, and that was the secretary to the first presidency. We now, those records are now on the internet available for anybody sitting anywhere in the world to look at now. Wow. So, like Todd said, the internet changed everything. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's fascinating stuff. So what do you guys think? Do you think there's still tensions between writing faithful history and writing scholarly history within the Mormon history field? Yes. Um, I, I'll just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I was going to say yes too. A, a good example, a really good example would be the Joseph Smith papers who are employed by the corporation of the president. Okay. They're, they, that's who owns the Mormon church is the corporation of the president. 
and um, the Utah Church, and owns all the property, owns all the buildings, owns everything. Okay, they are employed by the corporation of the president, and the the building that they work in is is the you know corporation of the president owns that building. Um, the materials housed in that building are owned by that entity. Um, and they just did a beautiful, um, absolutely gorgeous uh, facsimile edition, uh, which means it's oversized, um, beautiful pictures, high resolution pictures of all the, the material that's around the Book of Abraham. And that, again, some of that material, again, was sequestered away for 80, 90 years. Nobody outside of a few people ever got to look at those documents. The Joe Smith Papers now has made them available and to the world. And um, there was a group of ultra-right fringe in my opinion they're fringe but they're ultra right conservative mormons who attacked the publication of that book because of the some of the conclusions that the two editors had had drawn from the documents um again those editors allowing the evidence to direct their conclusions not a preconceived idea um, so they're, they were scholars, they're scholars. Both of the editors are, are top-notch scholars who did this. And, and they were attacked by um, this group. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, so yeah, the, 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 it's still there. It's still there, as Todd said yes to. Yeah, and, you know, in, in my life, I had this realization at one point that actually should have, is, is an obvious thing, but somehow it hit me. And that is that it's like the business of a religious institution to idealize their history, you know, to, to make it look as good as possible. And um, if you're writing honest history, you have to look at the evidence. And uh, as following up on what Joe said, you can't write positive propaganda and you can't write negative propaganda what you have to do is somehow write a kind of balanced history. Okay. And if you do that, you will find that you will offend some of the church leaders, but it's, it's very complex because some church leaders are very upset by the new Mormon history. Other church leaders are not excited about it, but they don't want to um, take any action. And, some historians have been excommunicated. Michael Quinn is an example. Fawn Brody is an example. But as an example of um, differences among church leaders, um, and it, this is from the book, it's from Greg Prince's chapter. Um, at one point, some powerful apostles tried to get Sterling McMurrin excommunicated, and David O. McKay, the president, stepped in and um, did not allow it to happen. And same thing happened with Juanita Brooks. Uh, one of the apostles tried to get her excommunicated, and again, the president of the church stepped in. Okay, and so you have difference among these church leaders because it is such a um, problematic thing. 
But if anyone is excommunicated, you know, it kind of gives a message to all other historians. Like I wrote In Sacred Loneliness under the shadow of of Mike Quinn and five other people being excommunicated. And um, so I'm glad that for a while there haven't been excommunications of, of historians, but we do know it could happen again. But uh, you have to try to be as honest and as balanced as possible, you know, explore the complexities and um, stay away from writing either positive or negative propaganda. And um, Daniel, again, this is kind of a theme in his his chapter, um, dealing with some of the leaders of, of his church who were not interested in the story of Bickerton coming out. Yeah, you're right. It's it's complicated. You know, I did have some support. I had one apostle support it privately, and he told the general historian, because originally I was doing it for the church, and then I eventually decided to go independent because basically because they didn't want me to talk about certain things like polygamy or that Bickerton believed in the Doctrine and Covenants, because in my church, they don't, to this day, we don't, we just believe in the Bible and Book of Mormon, right? So on a personal level, so even though I'm a historian, on a personal level, like I, I talk about these spiritual things, like we only believe in the Bible, the Book of Mormon. We don't believe in the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, anything like that. We don't like to be called Mormon. So, I mean, I, I'm perfectly fine with, you know, including my church within Mormonism because, you know, writing the history and studying it, you know, it, you just you just understand that, that that's, to- that's completely okay to talk about that. And that's, it should be allowed. But on a, on a more personal level, Nobody in my church likes being called that. So the fact that I was very comfortable calling it Bickerton's church, the very fact that I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable including our church within the realm of Mormonism, uh, the, just the very fact of on all these things, it was complicated. But one apostle did approach the general historian privately as I was writing for the church, and he did tell him, he says, this is the best history of the church I've ever read. And the general historian <laughs> let me know that. Unfortunately, <laughs> that, apostle passed, uh, that, that apostle passed away before the book was published. So I was really, you know, first of all, I was sad about his passing away, but I'm not going to lie. There was a deep part of me that was just like, shoot, like the one person I knew that supported <laughs> me in it is gone. And that really was, that, that was hard. To, that was hard as well because, you know, but thankfully within my church, we're very democratic. Um, I don't think anybody was itch- itching for me to be pushed out of the church by any means. I mean, that certainly wouldn't look good, especially because, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've gotten pushback on it too, and yes, has it been hurtful? Absolutely, and that's something I didn't want to include in my chapter too, because I know none of us could fully input everything we wanted to do in Joe's book. Um, but yes, it's hard to to deal with that stuff. But at the same point, the vast majority of people that you've, like you said, you always get pushback on books. But the vast, if you know, the vast majority of people and scholars are saying this is good stuff that you you've really hit something, you know, you, you know, you've done at least a decent job. And thankfully I was able even to use my book as part of my, my thesis to get my PhD. So it got peer reviewed another time. And I had to talk about everything, the sources, how I interpreted things, you know? So it's really, it, it's really, it's a really fun process to do that. Um, so yeah, there's tensions between writing faithful history and writing scholarly history. That was the big issue was that a lot of times especially my church is still new into this coming, coming out into this, you know, in the scholarly objective field, because, but most of the stuff that I had written about wasn't in the church literature at all. I mean, 
That's why Bickerton is is really talked about within the church literature. That's what made me so interested in him was that, wait a minute. I mean, (laughs) my comparison, I always say is that imagine yourself being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Utah church, and never really hearing about Joseph Smith. That sounds crazy. (laughs) But in my church, we almost never hear about Bickerton. Now, granted, that's good, I guess, right? It, the focus is on Jesus and on a spiritual sense. You, and, and, I, and I know the Utah church is like that too. But the the, the thing about Mormon history and uh, is what makes it, I think, significant is that you, you, the theology and the history are completely intertwined. You know, like most of the time, if somebody writes a book on Luther, most Lutherans probably, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really phase them. They might not even know about it, but within within Mormon history and within the, the, the whole realm of Latter-day Saint churches and Mormon churches, if you write a book on Joseph Smith, people are going to know about it. Same thing for when I wrote William Bickerton. People are interested because you can't separate history and theology. They go hand in hand. So in a way, it kind of complicates things. But I guess we're, I, I guess I'm going on a tangent and on a soapbox here. I'm sorry. But a long story no, short. No, that's good. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And long story, thank you for saying that. Long story short, and thanks for asking, guys. Yeah, it, you have to you have to write the history. You have to tell it objectively. You know, I, I just tried to write the history as best as I could. And there was another wonderful scholar, Gary Entz, that already put most of this information out anyways. I was just able to fill in a little bit of gaps. But his interpretation and my interpretation, you have a you have a PhD historian that's not even remotely related to my church that doesn't go. And you have a, you have somebody who I ended up getting my PhD and studying it, and I'm a believer. And you have a non-believer and a believer basically coming up with the same exact interpretation. And I had more sources than he did, but the interpretation was basically the same. How does that happen? We're both looking at the same stuff. But to me, it just goes to show that that that's really the story. And it and I just feel like it's important to talk about. And I feel like you know, Todd, you went through that. Everybody, I think that's the unique thing about Joe's book too. Is you see a lot of people, whether you're a believer or a non-believer. I mean, John Turner, who wrote this amazing biography on Brigham Young, this amazing American religious historian that teaches at George Mason. You even see the struggles that he even faced writing a biography on Brigham Young. It's 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 across the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was that was one of the main themes that came through in uh, a lot of these chapters was was the tensions. And another one that we've already talked about before is um, I, I call it an obsession, how historians get obsessed with the, with the topic. You know, and it certainly happened to me, you know, and it was so exciting. And I know Quinn has said every day I went to the LDS church archives was like Christmas morning, you know, yeah. <laughs> and that's how you feel when you're doing when you're doing the research and tracking down, you know, and solving these these problems. It, it, it's a wonderful feeling. But. You know, you do get obsessed. You <laughs> you you do lose out on other parts of your life, and that came through really interestingly in Linda Newell's chapter because she and Val Avery were parents while they were going through this obsession. You know, and they had kids they they were raising, and they talk about how they had to kind of you know follow this historical search at the same time they were raising their families. It was it was very difficult. Yeah, and that you know, and then the ramifications of actually having general authorities being critical of oh, yes. Uh, yes. them, and and one point they were able to speak in church about Emma Smith, and then all of a sudden 
they couldn't anymore. Uh-huh. What's interesting too is with Susan Staker, and um, I, my brain just froze right there. But <laughs> but two of the two of the, oh polyaired uh, polyaired and Susan Staker both um, you know are divorced and with children, and they then go on their odyssey of looking at the past and 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 dealing with that. So, yeah, I think that's one of the things I think, again, having 15 unique stories is we cover with, within those pages covers so much of a variety of people's lives that I think it allows the reader to uh, be sympathetic as they read those chapters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um McKinnon, his obsession, it was interesting because he's a non-Mormon. And uh, when he's going to school, his Howard Lamar, who was uh, kind of a young professor at that time, told him, oh, yeah, you know, this Utah war might be a good thing to write about. You know, and <laughs> some people would say, OK, I'll write a paper, you know, and write a paper and never, never think about it again. And he, McKinnon, he just kept going and going on the subject. And I remember at one point he tells in his chapter some of his, and he, he got jobs, uh, prestigious jobs in, um, I'm not even sure. General Motors. He was vice president in General Motors. He had prestigious jobs that were very time consuming. And I remember he said, one time my, my superiors, my bosses came to me and said, why are you spending so much time away from work in this obscure subject? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it really shows how you get obsessed in a good way with with you know these historical quests. That's re- great, Todd. And you emphasizing that is so important because that's right. That's exactly what occurs, as, as you can say, Daniel, with your obsession over Bickerton. You know, same thing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It does become an obsession. You basically get to you live with these historical figures and you try so hard to understand who they are. I mean, it almost sounds crazy. I mean, <laughs> historians <laughs> do something that it almost sounds unreal, but that's the job of the historian. It's it's an history is a it's a science, but it's also an art. And I think that I think you have you ha- you somehow have to balance both of those while you're writing. That's exactly right. That's exactly. Oh, well, Joe, Todd, this has been really fun. We have talked about a lot of topics. And is there any other th- any other topics that you would like to bring up? Um, I think we did a pretty good job. The only thing is to emphasize that these are fifteen people who wrote these chapters, and they I, I hit gold um, with these fifteen people, and I I think. I have to say I'm extremely lucky. One, a couple of things occurred. One is uh, Jason, who is the um, layout person at Signature Books. Now he's supposed to look, sort of glance at the pages to figure out, you know, how it's supposed to be setting and and how the layout's supposed to look. And I was told by one of the other people at Signature Books that as he was doing the layout, he couldn't stop reading the chapters. He had to actually read the chapters, and then he could do the layout. 
but he couldn't stop. He was hooked by that. A friend of mine, Levina Fielding, well, she's a friend of all three of ours, but Levina Fielding Anderson, when it, her book came to her, she said she, she was just going to read my introduction, which is quite short. And she said, at two o'clock in the morning, I realized I hadn't put the book down. I had read three or four chapters by that point. <laughs> and I needed to go to sleep. You know, this, that's to me, these are people, Levina has read every book under the sun and edited most books, you know, that have come through our system of Mormon history. Jason, you know, is, is that's his job. It, it's, you know, it would be like putting a Chevy whatever together, Chevy Nova together, and being so enamored with the parts that you put them together and drive the car around. You know, I mean, to have to have these people who really are professionals in the editing and publishing part be this crazy about the chapters, yeah, I I feel very lucky that that you 15 people were willing to uh, participate in this. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks Joe. for inviting it. us. Are you going to have a writing Mormon history too? Is there going to be a sequel, Joe? We've actually been talking about it already, and uh, yeah, there's. Um, I'm hoping that it'll be fun again. You know, I, I, you know, you worry because it was like, was this lightning striking? You know, kind of a thing. And I don't have an answer for that, but I do know that I'm excited about the prospect of getting another 15 or 20 people together to do that. But what's really interesting is what path it took you on, Todd. You you need to tell us a little bit about that path that you've now taken. Oh, since I wrote your article? Yes, well, yes. Well, I was doing research on your article. I was trying to figure out what some of the dates were and... Uh, and I looked to find some of the things I'd written and I was going through all my computer records and, you know, like a historian, try to get some primary sources. And I found a lot of things written by, by, by these women that I'd used in the book that I still had on my computer. And I thought, you know, all of these primary sources, these, these diaries and memoirs, they've never been published, you know, that would make a good book. So and I had them right there, most of them, uh, you know, just collected for me. So I ran it past um, Gary Bergera, and he was enthusiastic about the idea. So that's actually what I'm working on right now is uh, we call it In Sacred Loneliness too. <laughs> the document. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that yeah. exciting? I mean, I'm just so excited about that. I think there's nothing maybe as dramatic as that, but I've had a few authors say, you know, this made me look at my work a little different or this, you know, different things. But that's so exciting, you know, that, that you're doing that, Todd. Yeah, it's, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it'll be the, the doc, you know, the documents are wonderful. So, hey, before we stop, I have a good question I want to ask Joe that actually relates to this archives things because in Mike Quinn's chapter he just tells about discovering documents in the archives but Mike Quinn is one of my heroes naturally and um, it's a really good chapter but it's his diaries edited by Joe Geisner Joe tell us how that chapter came about it's well, different than any of the other chapters because the other chapters are just straight you know memoir you know but that one is diaries really. 
but edited by you, edited by someone else. How did that happen? Well, Mike, um, as you well know, Mike is working on his new plural marriage, two volumes. And so he, when I first approached him, he, he just said, no, um, he said, I can't, I can't do it right now. He goes, I I've got these two books I'm doing. And, and Mike is one of the most focused people when he does research. Uh, I mean, there's stories about when he was working on the J Rubin Clark biography of, of how he would just, that's all he did. You know, it was like from when he woke up to when he went to bed at night, he just, that's yeah. all he focused on. Yeah. And, and so he he just said, I, I can't. And so uh, Gary and I approached him sort of together and <laughs> and my and and didn't you know, <laughs> yeah, doubled up, right. And but but also, you know, we, we weren't trying to, to um, manipulate him. We were just, you know, see if there was any possibility. And he said, Well, um, oh and, and Gary knew that he had done a memoir. And so Gary said to him, well, you know, maybe if we just pull those parts of, of you doing the research for your books and pull those parts. And he says, well, I got my diaries and the memoir that I can just send to you. And so that's what I did. And they aren't the complete. Yeah, they aren't the Uh complete. You know, he didn't send me like all. He just Uh sent me the ones that were pertinent. And Uh then then what I did was just, and Gary, you know, we both went through them to see, because there were like just a few things. There were places, you know, where he Uh talks about winning an award, but he doesn't say what kind of an award. Things like that, Uh you know, and and then uh, and then just rounding it out. But. So, so it wasn't like I really had to, like you to have, you know, sat there and gone through a diary and, you know, and uh, like, well, particularly like what you did with the Helen, Helen uh, Kimball diary, where you, right, you know, yeah. edited that diary. It was nothing like that. It was nothing like <laughs> that. So, but, uh, but it was still fun. I mean, it, 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 yeah. it, it gives us a, yeah, and it gives I'm us so a that chapter got in there. Yeah, yeah, great. yeah. No, it, it it does. It gives us an insight. And like I said, I think it'll it'll be shocking for the average person who thinks they know Mike. Um, now, now it wasn't shocking for me because I've known Mike. I, I was only eighteen years old, I think, when I met him. You know, so I've known him for so long. But um, but yeah, I think for the average person, it's going to be quite enlightening for them to read that chapter. Oh yeah, insight. I love the insight into him as a young man, you know. Like Yes. It's it's yes. a wonderful tone in that in that chapter. Yeah. 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 It really is. But I you know, again, I'm I'm sort of prejudiced, I'll admit, but I think all 15 <laughs> chapters are that way, you know. <laughs> Well, Joe, Todd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This, I, as you can see, we could just keep talking about this forever. But the, as you can see, that we're going to have to cut it off at some point because people are just going to have to read this book, this wonderful book that Joe has put together. It is well worth buying. And I'll tell you what, Signature Books does beautiful books in general. They're, the quality of their bindings is just it's just out of this world. Um, and it's the tight. So if you want to get the hardcover, please get the hardcover. You will not be disappointed. Even the paperback's nice. It's called Writing Mormon History, Historians and Their Books, edited by Joseph W. Geisner. And we had on the podcast today, Todd Compton, who wrote a wonderful chapter in the book about his uh, 
about his experience writing in Sacred Loneliness, The Pearl Wives of Joseph Smith. Thank you both, still gentlemen, for being on. We really appreciate you being on today. Okay, thank you. <laughs> one, one, just one last comment, if you don't mind, is it's not easy to get the book right now, unfortunately, because of um, COVID-19. But Benchmark Books in Salt Lake City does have copies available, both the hard bound and the, the paperback. And their phone number is 801-486-3111. They're open Monday through Fridays for sure, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. And they're running a special right now that they actually, there's two other two other books and they'll give you one free if you pick up writing Mormon history. So it's a really good deal. And you're right. That book, it, it, signature books went out of their way to make a beautiful book. The, the gold embossing on the front of each of you authors' names in the cloth is absolutely beautiful. The, just everything about it is, is a beautiful book. Yeah. Um, they went out of their way to make a beautiful book. Absolutely. It sounds like a book yeah. collector talking. Are you a book collector, Joseph? <laughs> yeah, I think I've collected a couple of books. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Again, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. Well, you guys have a wonderful night and talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. thanks. Good night. Good night. Good night.